Okay, good morning everyone. If you've not met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. Very warm welcome to us. If you have a Bible, could you go to Mark chapter 15? Mark chapter 15. We're going to get there momentarily. I hope you had a good summer period. Lots going on. Uh, my family little update. We had a very busy summer um, at the beginning because the kids broke up. Our eldest, our youngest son was leaving primary school, going into secondary school, so that was a big emotional thing. And then we immediately flew into the New Day Festival where uh, we took 40 of our young people away, joined 8,000 others at the Norfolk Showground and had a wild time for a week there, um, which was fantastic, worshipping the Lord, hearing about him, loads of encounters. There's going to be some stories next week, so please come listen to them. We then came back. I then got ill with something called festival fever, which I'd never heard of. But apparently it's just a thing when you cram that many kids into a massive big top and everyone's just coughing and spluttering, things get round. And myself and several of the team came down with something, so that took me out for a week. Then the final week after that, we then had to work like Billy O to get everything ready because we were going away. And I don't know about you, but when you're going away somewhere and you've got a bit of holiday time, a bit of annual leave, you seem to have to work twice as hard just to get there and just kind of make sure everything's in place. And being ill, didn't help that process, but we made it. it. The culmination of all that work was we had a few days away up in the Peak District. We were staying at a friend's house and it was wonderful. So the culmination of our summer, we only got back Friday. Um, it was a wonderful time. And what we do is when we go away on holiday is we always ask the boys when we go, anything you want to do. And this time, you know, the usual stuff comes out. We want ice creams. We want to go out. We want to play games together. We want to explore new places, go to a paddling stream. But the youngest child said, Daddy, I want to go on a hike. Okay, that's new. And so where we were staying, we, um, we could see across the valley this tiny little thing in the distance. And we worked out what it was. It was a, an obelisk, a monument from the um, First and Second World War. And we found out you could hike up to it. It was about 200 meters of ascent. But we said, we're going to go up there. So we hiked up it and we had our first hike. That's us at the top there on the pile of stones near it called the Pots and Pans. And so we hiked up there and we had a wonderful time getting there. When we got to the top, uh, there was a couple of other groups, kind of family groups um, with some teenage kids. One had an elderly gentleman with them and they, uh, we were there and we took some photos and had a little chat. And then we was, it was time to go back down. I think we've got to go back down. And, we, and then the elderly gentleman came up and says, can you take a picture of me just to prove I've got here? And we're like, all right. And he, brought, he got out a digital camera. What's that? I said, you don't have a phone with a camera? He says, no, no. And then we realized he's on his own. He wasn't with the other groups. They just left. And so we sensibly said, we took a photo of him and said, so, you know, how old are you? You look old. 90. 90, he said. I've been on the phone to my daughter who is freaking out that I'm up the top of this big hill. Where do you live? Well, I live in Wigan. That's about 70, 80 miles of the crow fly from where we were. He said, I got the train here and thought I'd hike up. To which we're like... How do I pray for this right now? Well, he's just like, right, and, he, and he, we took his photo, and he says, right, I'm off. And he goes back down the hill, which looked really steep. We were going the other direction. And I was like, right, gather the family. We're going to pray for Gordon. Lord, have mercy on him, and he gets back. And I also, I also prayed, God, if I'm like that in my 90s, amen, amen. So that was just our experience of holidays. Um, if you've got your Bible, we're in Mark chapter 15. We've been preaching through the gospel of Mark for about a year now. We've got two Sundays left, this one 
And next one, and we'll have done Mark. High five someone around you and say, we're going to make it. We're going to get there. And we will finish the gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 15. We're starting at verse uh, 33. Jesus is reaching the culmination, the end of his ministry here on earth. He has been arrested. He has been tried before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He has been sentenced to death by the Roman judge, Pilate. He has been beaten. He has been mocked. He has been flogged. And he has been led out to be crucified. And we will pick up the verse. It's going to appear on behind me, but I'm going to read it out to you. Please follow along. It says this, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hear it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran And filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and James and Salome. When he was uh, in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already have died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid all right big idea for this morning big idea for this morning only by looking at Jesus death on the cross can we truly see him as the son of God only by looking at Jesus death on the cross can we truly see him as the Son of God. What's happened in the Gospel of Mark up till now, last couple of chapters we've been looking at, is we've seen a series of events where Jesus has witnessed, been a witness to those around him, and we have seen their response, and up to this point it has all been negative. We've had the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, the religious leaders of the nation accuse him of blasphemy. They don't believe who he is. We've seen Peter, his close friend, who's followed him for years, denies even knowing him. We've seen Pilate, the governor, sentence him to death. We've seen the crowd gathered before the governor's mansion choose Barabbas over Jesus. Barabbas, a terrorist over Jesus. We've seen the soldiers come before him, humiliate him and beat him. And we've seen the bystanders mock his claims to being 
the Messiah, the one who is to come and save his people. Up to this point, there has been a negative response to who Jesus is. But finally, in this passage, we get a positive response from the centurion who is standing there overseeing Jesus' execution. This Gentile, this non-Jew and a Roman to boot, becomes the first person to confess Jesus as God's son. The first person to confess Jesus is God's son. So while Jesus was alive, humanity was opposed to him in all his form, but only in his death does humanity see who he truly is. Only through Jesus' death do we truly see him as the son of God. Jesus' death is the culmination of his mission to earth and his revelation of who he is as the son of God. So let's go through the passage Have a look at what it says to us. So the first section, verses 33 to 39, death and revelation. It begins with judgment, verses 33 and 34. So there's a sixth hour to the ninth hour, it says. That's about 12 noon, middle of the day, to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, It's reference to the Romans, the way they broke up um, the day. Um, And so that watch, the sixth to the ninth hour. And it says darkness was coming. And the darkness is a sense of foreboding, something ominous, It points back to the 10 plagues of Egypt where one of them was darkness, which was pronouncement of judgment on Pharaoh who had hardened his heart towards Moses and God when Moses came and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And and God said, one of the plagues that's going to come is a plague of darkness. It's a fulfillment of the prophet Amos. Chapter 8, verse 9, it says, on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. And darken the earth in broad daylight. And this judgment of God is over the whole land, it says. points to the universal judgment of God on mankind for their sin. But the difference here is the judgment of God is being poured out not on all humanity who deserve it rightly, but on the one person who doesn't deserve it, which is Jesus. Jesus is facing the judgment of God in our place as sinners because he is the sinless one. And in response to this, Jesus cries out. And Mark here unusually records the exact words Jesus says, which would have been in Aramaic. That's what the language he'd have spoken. So that's what we read in, my, in our Bibles and my murderous pronunciation of it. But those are the exact words Jesus spoke in Aramaic. And then for his uh, non-Aramaic speaking readers, which would have been the Romans who would have read this originally when Mark wrote his gospel to the church in Rome, he translated it and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is a quote from Psalm 22. It's how Psalm 22 begins, about the righteous one suffering unjustly. And Jesus is quoting the psalm and thus fulfilling it as the righteous one who's come, perfect, innocent, yet is dying in the place of the unrighteous and the sinful. And we've seen the imagery of the Lamb of God and the Passover and all that means. And Jesus is now acting it out. And this cry comes as he faces the wrath of God, the judgment of God for the sins of humanity. And this isn't a, this isn't a sudden surprise turn of events. This isn't suddenly, oh, at the end we might as well do this. This has been building throughout the gospel. Mark has recorded in Mark chapter 8. And we've looked through these where Jesus says to his followers, he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Mark chapter 9, Jesus said it again. He was teaching his disciples saying the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. 
And in Mark chapter 10, it says, Caesar, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And Jesus later also says in Mark chapter 10, 45, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life for a ransom for many. Jesus' death is all part of the plan, a plan of God to save sinners. And here, God himself, Jesus as God the Son, has come to earth and has taken the place of sinful mankind and is dying in their place for their sins. He is not an unfortunate victim, someone whose public opinion turned against him, someone who's being cancelled by culture. He is willingly choosing to do this as part of the plan. And in the midst of that judgment, we have a reference to Elijah. Comes up a couple of times as some of those watching on say, he's calling Elijah. Now what we know about Elijah, we preached him a couple of years ago. What's unusual about Elijah is how he died. He, he was taken up into heaven. He didn't actually die in the, the traditional sense. He was taken by God, chariot of fire. And the belief was that at the time was that Elijah would return to protect and rescue the righteous. And what they're kind of saying, what the commentators think is with Jesus using the Aramaic, the Eloi sounds a little bit like Elijah. They, they could have misheard it and they think he's calling on Elijah. He believes himself to be unjust. And they're kind of waiting. Well, if, if you're calling Elijah and you are innocent, Elijah will come and save you. And obviously we know Elijah doesn't come and save him in that, in that sense. But what the bystanders fail to see is Jesus is the innocent one and he's dying in our place for our sins. And Elijah, according to Mark's gospel and the others, has already come. We saw that right at the beginning. Who was the Elijah who was to come and prepare the way? John the Baptist. So Elijah's already come. He's prepared the way for the one, the Messiah. And he was the one who's come to die in our place. It says in Deuteronomy, the curse is the one who hangs on a tree. And so Jesus, the innocent one, is facing the curse and judgment of God by being hung on the tree, the cross, and dying in our place for our sins. And what they failed to see is Elijah is not coming to rescue Jesus. Jesus has come to rescue them. He's come to rescue them and he's doing it through his death on the cross. And even in his death, he's fulfilling more of the Old Testament prophecy. Psalm 69, 21 says, they give me poison for food and for my thirst, they give me sour wine to drink. So even these bits Mark's putting in saying this is all part of the plan that's been in place for hundreds, thousands of years. And then finally this section ends with Jesus' death. It says he uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So Jesus has suffered an incredible ordeal, both physically spiritually, emotionally, and at the culmination of it, Jesus dies. Jesus dies. And his death in verse 37 leads to two events in verse 38. And he's fulfilling what Mark has been outlining since the beginning of the gospel, his death. And we have, a, we have two things that happen. The first one is the curtain in temple, tears in two, and the second one is the confession from the Roman centurion. And so Jesus' death isn't some tragic end of the story it is the culmination of a divine plan and as, a, as he dies the temple curtain 
is torn in two, and it's believed to be the one that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And we did the book of Leviticus. We looked at this in the Day of Atonement and the structure of the tabernacle, and you had the holy place where the priests could go, and they could minister, and they made sure the showbread was there and the candles were lit. And then there was the most holy place at the end where only the high priest could go. Only, and he could only go once a year, having done a whole bunch of rituals. And that was a sacred place because that's where the presence of God dwelt. And man couldn't enter the presence of God because man was sinful. And the high priest was the chosen one. He could go in on behalf of mankind, only after he'd make atonement for the people, but also atonement for his own sin because he was imperfect. And that curtain is now ripped And I think it's interesting that it rips from the top to the bottom, from God to man. And suddenly the way is open. Man can now come to God. And this is a similar language. We've heard it once before in Mark because what we've got at the end of the gospel is the culmination of things that happen at the beginning of the gospel. And there is a tearing at the beginning of the gospel. I don't know if you remember it. It's when Jesus was baptized. It says in Mark 1 verse 10, And when he came out of the water, immediately saw the heavens being torn open same language and the spirit descending on him like a dove so we have heaven touching earth then when God the Father speaks God the Spirit comes down and rests on God the Son and we have it again here where we have a tearing and the presence of God is now open for people to come to him but only through the death of Jesus Christ what we saw in chapters 11, 12 and 13 of Mark was the temple system as it was then which was the fulfillment of the tabernacle has been pronounced as no longer effective. And there was a whole series of stuff on that. The place where you meet God is only found where? In Jesus. That's where you find it. That's where men and women come to God, is only through Jesus. The only point of access is through him. And then what happens straight after that is the centurion. And I can imagine this guy. This guy would have been a hard-bitten soldier. He would have been used to fighting killing even in formal executions in battle he'd have seen it all and he was a leader of men other soldiers other killers and it says he was there he would have been there through the rest through the trial through the beating of Jesus the crown of thorns on his head the mocking the dragging him out Simon of Cyrene comes you carry the cross because he's in such a mess the nailing of that body the lifting up of Jesus and the other two either side he'd have overseen all that And it says he stood facing Jesus. He is looking at the Son of God die and overseeing it. And in doing that and watching Jesus die and breathe his last and hearing what he says, it says he confesses truly this man was the Son of God. The revelation of who Jesus is which was hidden for so many, and we've seen that through Mark's gospel, so many people missed him. The ones who seemed to know him were the demons who kind of cried out, we know who you are. Peter has a flash, you are the Christ, and then immediately mucks it up by saying, no, 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 you can't go and die. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus has that. And then he runs off and denies him, so he's not doing great. And then we get the first person here who recognizes Jesus as the Son of God. And this is another culmination. This time last year, we began the Gospel of Mark, and I preached on one verse, Mark 1, verse 1. Do we remember what it says? It says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son 
of God. So Mark's saying, this is what I'm going to tell you about. And then the centurion is the guy who gets it. The Roman, the Gentile, the hated oppressor, the one outside of God's covenant people. And yet he sees Jesus. He confesses him and he does it through Jesus' death on the cross. That is what brings the revelation. Not the healings, not the miracles, not the teachings, which Jesus did many of and they're amazing and they're exciting and they're good. It's through Jesus' death that the revelation comes. Second section, death and faithfulness. What we see now are some of Jesus' followers who were there um, at the point of death. The disciples we know have done a runner. Peter spectacularly failed, but they all have. They're all gone, but there are those who are still there being faithful. And the first group is just the women, of which there are many. Some are named, some are not. Uh, It's unusual for Mark to name people, but he names them, particularly in this account, I think this is uh, for the eyewitness point of view and saying, actually, if you want to go and check out what I've written, you can talk to these people. You've got Mary Magdalene. She's mentioned in three of the Gospels. Um, You've got Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph, and that's to differentiate them from James and John, who are the son of Zebedee. There's a different James. And there's Salome, who is the mother of James and John. We find that in Matthew, Matthew 27. So these women plus others were there witnessing what has happened. So what Mark's writing about, he's not making up. He's saying there are witnesses, people who saw this. And the, and the fact that the women were still there proves their faithfulness. The dudes had done a runner. The women were still there to the end. And there were many. It says there were many other women. So there was a whole group of them there. And they were among Jesus' most faithful followers. So they've been there. And it says they were watching from a distance. So they were seeing everything that is going on with Jesus' death and what Mark is doing is also setting up what's going to come next because next week we'll do chapter 16 and we'll be done. And if you know the story of Jesus, you know what's coming and these women are going to be instrumental uh, in that as well. So Jesus is set up. So they were there, faithful to the end. And then we come to Joseph, another character. And Joseph, it says, verse 42, it says, and the evening came, since it was a day of preparation, Friday, Saturday the Sabbath, when they would have been resting, it says he comes to ask for Jesus' body. Now, crucifixion was used as a mode of terror by the Roman uh, Empire um, to, to keep the people in line and to put down insurrection and the like. And so bodies were often left hanging on the cross, um, which was just, just to show. And they would just be pecked at by the birds. They often could take days to die. And so it was, they were just left there as, an, as a visual example of you don't mess with Rome, but the Jewish tradition, they wanted to get the bodies down, bury them, give them a proper burial due to this very seriously, even for criminals, it says in the law in Deuteronomy, even for criminals, it was actually, you you still honor the body and you bury them. And so Jesus goes, uh, sorry, Joseph goes to Pilate, Joseph's from Arimathea, which is an area north of Jerusalem. It said he was respected, which means he was prominent, he was honorable, he was part of the Jewish ruling council. So he was there, he was an important figure. And so he is showing great courage by identifying himself with this criminal who has been murdered by Rome on the cross and he goes to Pilate and it says I want the bottle I want the body of Jesus and he's a model disciple because he's waiting he chose courage but he's waiting for the kingdom of God 
He's waiting for the kingdom of God. And he took courage and he went and asked for the body. Um, and he wants, he wants that. And the Pilate, in response, is surprised. He says, because they usually take a long time to die. And they're like, you know, they expire slowly to kind of really draw out this process for them. But actually, it's like, is he dead? And he summons this centurion. The same centurion we've got. Some of the centurion comes back. Is he dead? I want to check. And the centurion, being an expert in these things, says, yes, he is absolutely dead. Jesus did not swoon, faint, or pass out. As some people like to believe, he is dead. Um, he is actually, even in the text, what does it say? He granted the corpse. Corpse is a dead body. Jesus died. He grants that to Joseph uh, of Arimathea. So then Joseph, and he says, he bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut from the rock and he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. So what were the culture? Our culture, we tend to put people in a box, bury them in the ground. Their culture was they would have tombs that could be reused with slabs with plinths on and they would put the body in there wrapped in a linen shroud and when the body had decayed and the bones would be removed and another body could be put in there. That's what it is. So Joseph is using that tomb. The tomb is then sealed um, by a large rock and it's setting up what's going to happen on Sunday and we'll come to that next week. So that's the passage, that's the story of today. Let's look at a little bit um, of application for us now in what we do with this. First thing, the message of Jesus must include the cross. The message of Jesus must include the cross. Mark has led us through his gospel, making very clear that this is the good news of Jesus, who Jesus is. He is the chosen one of Israel. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is God the Son. But without the cross, you don't get the full message. And the temptation for us is to preach Christ without a cross. Can we make this message more palatable so more people will respond and become Christians? But without it, you don't have a message. You don't have anything for people to respond to. You water down the gospel. You do no favors when communicating the truth of Jesus by omitting the cross. Kind of, let's, let's leave that, that kind of grim, dark part of the story. No, the, Jesus must die on the cross for sins in our place. All four Gospels climax with this. It's the bit they were leaning up to. Jesus dies on the cross. Yes, we have the resurrection. We'll look at that next time. But it's all about getting Jesus to the cross. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I can't talk to you about Jesus without talking about the crucifixion. I can't separate them. And in fact, that's all I want you to know, who Jesus was and the fact that he died. He died on a cross. And this means a few things for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we need to get ourselves around. The first one is that Jesus actually died. He died in our place. He died on the cross. There was no accident he didn't revive in the tomb and the disciples came and got him and overpowered the guards and da, 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 all these theories that come about. No, Jesus was dead. Mark writes that eyewitness account. There was a corpse that was given 
by Pilate the centurion to Joseph Arimathea so he could put it in the tomb. Jesus died. Second thing, Jesus' Jesus' death has paid the price for our sin. Jesus' death has paid the price for our sin. Bible makes very clear that we are fallen, broken people, that we have sinned. We have, um, which is uh, the Bible's way of saying, we have, we have fallen short of God's standard, and we have done this by the things that we've thought, said, and done, and we've done this by the things that we, have thought we haven't done that we should have done, sins of commission, sins of omission. We are all, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, his standard perfection, and we rightly stand under God's judgment. And we all know this intuitively. We all know that we're, we're not perfect. There are things we're broken. We're things we're wrong. We can't even keep our own standards, let alone God's standards. We fail repeatedly. And sin requires judgment. But Jesus has paid that in our place for our sins. Jesus has died so that we don't have to. Paul, Apostle Paul, again, writing to the church in Corinth, says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. And we've seen the scriptures being fulfilled in this text. But Paul is underlying that Jesus died in our place for our sins. He writes in 2 Corinthians, the church in Corinthians, For our sake, he, Jesus, sorry, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God because we take Jesus' righteousness when we have none of our own. And so Jesus actually died. He died for our sin. But Jesus' death also brings revelation and salvation. So when we look at Jesus, when we look at the cross, just like the Roman centurion, we see Jesus fulfilling his mission to come to earth, to die in our place for our sins. It brings revelation when we look at the cross, but it also brings salvation The glory of God is found in the humility and suffering of Christ. Mark has made that clear throughout his whole gospel. And as we get to the end, hopefully he's reinforcing the point that the Son of Man came to serve and to die as a ransom for many. Jesus has always come to do that. And his glory is found in his suffering. He's more than a worker of miracles. He's more than a moral teacher. He's more than an example that we are to follow. He is God the Son, come to earth to die in our place for our sin. And he is the only one we can trust for our salvation. He's the only one we can put our trust and our hope and our faith in. There's nowhere else and no one else we can do it. No political cause, no fulfillment in this life, no holidays, no adventures. Nothing will satisfy and save you. Only in Christ can we find it. So if you're not a believer here, you don't know Jesus, you're a guest amongst us, it's lovely to have you with us. What I want to say to you today is you need to come to Jesus. You need to come to your Savior who died on a cross in your place for your sin. You need to repent, which means turn around, go the other way, put your faith and trust in him. Come part of his people, the church, and worship him and follow him all the days of your life. If you are a believer here today, you need to come afresh to a crucified saviour, to the one who died on a cross in your place for your sin. And you need to praise him and worship him and thank him for that. You need to repent of your sins afresh, whatever they may be. 
and you need to look to him. And you need to, if you've been tempted to communicate the good news of Jesus without the cross, you need to remind yourself, no, the good news of Jesus is the cross. Last thing, number two. Following Jesus means taking up our cross. In response to seeing the cross and the Son of God dying on it, we are called to do the same. Earlier in the Gospel, Mark 8, 34, these words are recorded. Jesus called the crowd to him with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And the imagery here, we, we often water this down. We describe having a cross to bear as some kind of inconvenience, an annoying family member or boss or some kind of thing. Jesus isn't talking about that. He's talking about dying horribly, humiliatingly, suffering greatly. And as followers of Jesus, we are to walk that road. We are to follow that model. We are to die to self and live for him. We are to put his kingdom priorities above our own. We are to serve others. We are to love the unlovely and the outsider. We are to proclaim the good news of Jesus. He is the only way which will put us in direct opposition to the culture that we live in, wherever we live. It's not just the 21st century Western culture. It's any culture, anywhere. When you proclaim the good news of Jesus, you will find yourself in direct opposition. And the church of God and the saints of God have suffered greatly through the centuries because of that. But that is what we are called to do. Because we know ultimately it is the truth. We know ultimately that only, our only hope and salvation is found in Jesus we know that the only revelation of that is found through Jesus on the cross. So we are to endure suffering in this life because we know this life will be hard. We know this life will be difficult. And because we live in a 21st century Western bubble, we think this is, this is kind of good. This is what life is like. 90% of the planet, 95% of the planet live way worse than we do. But we are to endure suffering and to faithfully proclaim the good news. We are to be men and women empowered by the Spirit to do that. We're not left alone. Jesus said, I'm going to send someone who will be with you forever and he will help you, the Holy Spirit. So we have him with us, God the Holy Spirit, empowering us to serve. But we are to proclaim the good news of Jesus, dying on a cross in our place for our sin, rose from the dead, sent it into heaven. But we are to walk the road of suffering with him. And that is a decision we have to make. A decision we have to make daily, repeatedly, when the, the, the pressures and the storms of life come in, knowing that he'll never fail us. I think we sang about something like that. So I'm just going to pray, and we're going to worship this Jesus. So maybe the band want to come up. Maybe you guys want to stand. Close your eyes. And we are going to pray. And then we're going to worship. Maybe you want to just close your eyes, open your hands. Holy Spirit of God, we thank you that you are here with us. We thank you that you're here to reveal Jesus to us. We pray you would fill us now afresh. We pray you would open the eyes of our hearts to see you as the crucified Messiah. 
as the one who died in our place for our sin. Lord, we thank you that you rose again. We thank you that you ascended to heaven. We thank you for ruling and reigning now. But in this moment, Lord, we want to look at a bloodstained cross and say, God, you died in our place for our sin, and we praise you and we thank you. Apostle Paul wrote, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but those who are called, both Jew and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this gospel, this good news. We thank you for Mark's account. We thank you for leading us through it. We thank you for this great culmination of your death on our cross God we ask you open our eyes to see it Lord like the centurion who looks and says truly this is the son of God we thank you that the temple curtain has been torn in two we thank you that the way is now open that we can come to God the father through God the son by God the spirit Lord Jesus we thank you for that Lord God we ask you fill us now with your spirit to be courageous women and men who follow you, Lord Jesus, who look to you, God, who will be men and women who pick up our cross daily and follow you, who proclaim your message, who live out your works on the earth. And God's people said, yeah, amen. amen.